and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, the podcast brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. I'm Dominic Frisbee, and alongside me today is my co-host Andy Ori, who is on a mission to bring the fascinating business stories of Ori Clark's clients to a wider audience with this podcast. A quick reminder, if you like what we do, please do rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at BizWithoutBS. So, that's the introduction out of the way. Andy, how are you doing? Who's our guest today? What are we going to be talking about? Thank you, Dom. Uh, Today's guest is our good friend, Jason Gibb. Uh, Jason is a food entrepreneur, uh, community builder, climate activist, and vegan advocate uh, who has a passion for mission-driven businesses that can have an impact on sustainable development goals. Jason's most recent venture is the founding of Bread and Jam, the UK's biggest food and drink founders festival for emerging and scaling brands with the aim of bringing together entrepreneurs, innovators, investors, buyers, media, and industry leaders. And a wonderful thing it is. Jason was the 2021 food judge, lucky man, at the Great Taste Awards, that's that little sticker, the Great British Entrepreneur Awards, and the Freeform Food Awards, to name a few. We're in excellent company, Dom. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So, why don't we start with where and how did your passion for food and sustainability come from? Well, we could go back right to the beginning. I uh, was always very much interested in sustainability and the environment. At uni, I studied marine biology. I always wanted to be a science communicator, actually. I was very passionate about trying to explain to the general public about how we're screwing up the planet, even, you know, I was thinking about this 20, 30 years ago. And so... I thought, right, I'm going to become a scientist and then I'm going to work in the media. And I, I thought, right, I'm going to be a kind of conduit between the science community and the general public and try to explain to people how we're messing up the environment. So I did my PhD, got that under my belt, and then applied to TV companies that were making environmental programs back in the day. And unfortunately, there weren't many. So I ended up working on a, a science engineering game show called Scrap Heap Challenge, which was my first job in telly. And I vaguely remember that. Oh, I remember oh, it. Man. It was a you, you either show. remember it or you don't. It's like, yeah. so two teams in a junkyard, they've got to make a machine out of scrap. They've got a day to do it's it. It's quite impressive. And at the end of the day, they got to race it against each other. So they're building drag, drag racing machines, power pullers, yachts, submarines, that kind of thing. And actually, there was quite a lot of science in there and a bit of, you know... Sustainability, recycling. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So... I really enjoyed doing that. What did you do do on it exactly? You were- so I started off as a researcher, you know, uh, the job at the bottom, which was by far the funnest bit of it. And then ten year, by 10 years later, I was um, making the same show out in Los Angeles for Discovery Channel. They called it the Junkyard Wars over there. And I was series producing it and in charge of like hundreds of people. Oh, wow. and living in LA. Yeah, living in LA under the Hollywood sign in West Hollywood. No way. And it was a pretty cool lifestyle, but incredibly shallow. Yeah. And um, I decided then that I wanted to make something that I was a bit more proud about, something with my hand, something that I could hold in my hands and say to someone, look, I, this, is a, this is a good thing that I've made. And, you know, it's not a TV show that goes out and basically sells advertising space. So me and my missus, uh, who I also work with out there, we decided that, um, actually, 
we used to go down to the farmer's market in, in, in LA and we discovered Californian olive oil there. And we we're like blown away by it. And we we're like, why don't we make olive oil? Why don't we chunk this all in and buy an olive grove in Europe and move there and make olive oil? You're living the dream in LA. Living the dream. Think, Let's go make olive oil. That's, um, that's a little bit of a left turn at the lights. Well, yeah. So we chucked in the, the, the well-paid jobs in telly, the Hollywood lifestyle, and we bought an abandoned olive grove on the east coast of Italy in a region called La Marche. We found an abandoned olive grove with about a thousand olive trees there. And, still uh, growing. Still growing. They, yeah, they were in a right mess, though, completely like devastated and overgrown, branches falling off everywhere and wild boar everywhere. And yeah, it was a bit of a mess. Yeah. But we didn't realize that at the time because we knew bugger all about olive oil. I love this. So, How old are you? How old am I now? No, when, when, when this happened. Um, so that was uh, 2000, 2004. <laughs> so I was in my mid 30s. Right, write that down. So that means he's. <laughs> <laughs> so we had one child at that point. Um, With one child? Yes, yeah, so she was about LA. one and a half. And you just moved to Italy. You speak Italian? No. Okay. But that's where the olive groves are. What, you get on Google and you say, I'm looking for an olive grove? So, so, so basically, uh, I mean, my life has been about kind of accumulating different skills. And, and one of them that you, I got in TV was picking up a subject really quickly, finding out everything about it, finding out all the right people to talk to and becoming a kind of a pseudo-expert overnight. So that's what we did with olive oil. We read all the books in English about making olive oil, which was one at the time. But we spoke to all the kind of local experts about how to do it, how to prune, what makes a good olive grove, that kind of stuff. So we did, we did actually do our, our research. We threw ourselves into learning Italian, we kind of nailed that eventually. And we threw ourselves into kind of starting a business. We had no business experience at all you know, no agriculture experience. So that is where the seeds of what I'm up to now came from, you know. So starting a business, there being no support, there being no manual on, you know, this is how you start a food business. I was like shocked that there was very little information out there. So we basically did it all ourselves by making lots of mistakes, trial and error, probably wasted lots of money, wasted lots of time. But one thing we, we discovered very quickly is that it's hard to make money in olive oil. No one knows what, like, what's the difference between extra virgin and virgin? What's, what's first cold press? Why is one olive oil, like, 20 quid, another one, five quid? Mm. It's like, no one knows about this, and no one's willing to pay that extra money because making good quality olive oil is really expensive. It's really a uh, lot of manual labor. Yields are fairly low. So we discovered that it was going to be hard to make money from just selling a, a good olive oil, especially from newbies like us. So another skill we had from TV was storytelling, you know, how to tell a good yarn, what, you know, what's the narrative. So we came up with this idea where you could adopt one of our olive trees and we'd send you the harvest of oil from your tree and you could come to Italy and you could hug your tree and we'd show you around the olive grove and all this kind of stuff. And we had no idea whether it would work or not. We did no kind of market research. We we set up a web website. We had no idea how much to charge for adoptive olive tree. I mean, when I say we have no idea, we obviously did all, all our research, but we kind of did it from scratch. So we launched this, this idea the first Christmas we got there. Luckily, it was a good story, got in the papers, and it just kind of snowballed from there. We sold our first hot harvest of oil to Selfridges. We have people from around the world adopting olive trees. Barbara Streisand adopted an olive tree for Bill Clinton. People like that. It went around the Hollywood wow. circles. So when you adopted a tree, would it effectively become yours? 
Yeah, so you'd adopt it for 12 months. Yeah. <laughs> would you give them the bottle of oil that had come from that tree or would you just give them a bottle of oil? So you can't press like trees individually. So we'd no. have to press about 50 trees together. So you would, it would be a bit of a communal effort. Okay. But it would come from that part of the grove. But it's a way of getting money up front, effectively. That's the genius of it. Exactly. We, we happened to hit upon a really good business model. We would get prepaid up to six months in advance and then we could use that money to fund the business. Yeah, wow. So I, we didn't realize How much at the for time. a tree back then? It's about £80, $149 back then. It's quite reasonable. And out of that, I get, what, three bottles or something? I think you would get, um, you get two shipments, three large tins and then three small tins of flavoured oil in the autumn. And that, I wouldn't pay any more. For 80 quid, that would turn up. Yeah. Plus, including shipping. Including shipping, yeah. Yeah, that's not such a bad deal. That's because I mean, olive deal. oil was a lot more expensive back then than it is now. I mean, it's, I look at the olive oil in the supermarket. I'm like, how can you sell it so cheap? But but it was much yeah. dear, yeah, much yeah. dearer. I met than, an it? expert in olive oil once, and she went on off on a big. She made olive. She on a big thing about how all the stuff we eat have is absolute crap in this country, and it's like, is this true? It's like it's like one of those famous brand. It's like, I mean, from from the moment olive oil is pressed, it's getting worse. So you want it really fresh. You know, any olive oil that has not got a date on it when it was harvested don't touch it because it's got to be from that season. Really? It doesn't last? It's oil, though. Why, the flavour starts to Yeah, go. so it's got all these kind of very volatile aromatic uh, compounds that give it the flavour and give it the antioxidants as well. So when, when you get that light hit at the back of your throat, have you ever had that when you drink olive oil? You probably haven't, have you? Probably not drunk yet. I haven't neat. lived, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of antioxidants that mean it's kind of fresh and stuff. But yeah, most of it here is that there's a lot of adulteration and a lot of dodgy crap that goes on. Um, so you get what you pay for, generally. Okay, so it was a hit, though. Yeah, I mean, it was a hit to a certain extent. So again, you know, lots of business learnings through that. One, one of which was in Italy, like business relationships are friendships. You know, the, the olive press, the other suppliers, they all became my friends. We'd have dinner with them. I'd know their family. And kind of because of that it became a bit of a life, lifestyle brand rather than a kind of really commercial brand in the sense that Corrado would would sell me some of his oil, but it was too expensive. But I couldn't tell him to kind of knock off 10 cents or 20 cents or 30 cents because he was my mate. He would sell you oil to boost your supply. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He would be one of my other suppliers, for example. He, he would do all my like flavored oils, for example. Right, right. And the business, because it was my first business, it was very much part of me. It was part of my soul, the bank account. The money in the bank account was like my money. I couldn't make a business decision without it feeling part of my soul. Yeah. So that was um, a good learning experience in terms of a bit of distance between you and you and your business, and which I've taken into subsequent businesses to kind of be, you know, totally into it and passionate and, and throw everything into it. But... Um, to keep a bit of myself apart from it. Yeah. But it did pretty well. Uh, you know, When did you upset, end up selling the business? So after 10 years, so in about 2014. 2014, yeah. Who did you sell it to? I sold it to a high net worth individual. She came to me for advice. She was buying an olive grove in Liguria and she came to me for advice because she read our book. We also wrote a book called The Dolce Vita Diaries, still available on Amazon. Um, which was... Um, You're an industrious <laughs> pair, though. You're running, you're rolling up your sleeves, running a physical manufacturer, you know, sending out stuff and you're writing a book all at the same time, or...? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we used to write um, pretty witty newsletters to kind of our, our mailing list. That was our main kind of marketing thing. And 
there was a, an editor of a publication house who was reading our newsletters and she said, will you write a book? Okay. We did that. That was good fun. I do think writing a book is a really good way to improve the value of your business. And I wonder if it's specifically about farm things, but when you, if you can attach a, a story and uh, some history particularly to a, a, a real thing like land, so that you've got the real thing there, but then you've got the story in people's minds. I'm thinking particularly, I read a book called Rewilding about a farm in um, in Sussex, which, do you know, are you familiar with this book? Yes, brilliant book. It's brilliant. Absolutely, love it. And, um, yeah. and it's just, in, in, in case you don't know it, the, the story is, when I say you, I'm talking to you, dear listener, rather than Jason, but the, the story is of, of they bought this enormous, or they had in the family, this enormous farm in Sussex. And they tried all sorts of ways of, of trying to make it work as a business and couldn't. And then eventually ran out of money and just let the whole thing go for a couple of years. And then suddenly all these weird birds that hadn't been seen in hundreds of years suddenly returned and all this wildlife. And they suddenly decided to turn it into a rewilding project. And I've walked it, I've camped there, and it's just fantastic. And I'm, you know... It's a wonderful project, but I'm sure it would have nothing like the value it now does if that book hadn't sort of told the story and put it in, in people's minds. Absolutely. I to totally agree. However, I think one of the problems with that might be don't try and build a business too much around yourself because obviously you've got to be expendable ultimately. So we were quite conscious of not it not being, you know, the voice of Jason Cathy, who's, who's my partner, but it was kind of the, the voice of Nudo that someone else could carry on. So you've got to be quite conscious of, of building businesses around an individual. And, and that's often the case in, in food, because that often happens in food, which makes it kind of more problematic when you want to move on. Do you like olive oil still today? Or um, <laughs> it's, That's a good question, because I, I have a, quite an ambiguous relationship with it, because it was, in many ways, that was quite a scarring... I bet. Scarring business. Selling a business is like... Pretty hardcore. What, what? Selling the business, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you want it just to be like selling something, you know, selling a bicycle, you know, but it, it takes forever selling a business. It and is, and, and it, you know, it's like, well, how much do you value your baby? Like, you know, is anyone mm. going to look after your baby like you look after it? You, were, God, I see what you mean. You're incredibly emotionally invested in yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a very stressful experience and it, it, it had a few hiccups along, along the way. What was the biggest hiccup? The biggest hiccup is is when you're selling a business, there's a clear point where the power balance changes. And I didn't realize that. When they're in control. When you can negotiate is before you're saying, yes, this is done. And when you can't negotiate or, and you're absolutely exposed is when... They negotiate. Yeah, when, yeah. When, when it's been agreed and and you're not talking to anyone else. It's just them who are the kind of, you know, they're the buyers. They then have all the control. Mm. That's true. You're talking about the process that there's a there's a period where it's all you know everyone's being nice and you haven't you haven't shown them your underpants yet kind of thing and then exactly. it's like the clothes are off and then exactly. they're like well I mean we do this all the time we we have to do DD and we yep. review the business and I mean there's one going on at the moment and you know they were like it looked like a tidy business and then 
we get in there with our, you know, protractors and whatever, and they were like, well, it's all of these problems, to be honest, you yeah. know, and then they negotiate and by the that price time, down. You've, and you've, I feel bad about yeah. it. But and you said no to everyone else's interest. In yeah, it. yeah. It's exclusive It's now. exclusive. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. they're saying, oh, knock this off, knock that off. Which actually, the message within that is run a tight ship, basically. You know, have all your paperwork, have everything tidy before you go in for a sale, because at some point it'll all be on the table. And it's a, it's a lever to cut price. So you sold your business 2014. Yeah, so, sold my business 2014 and uh, was pretty kind of worn down by then. Which, and you were bringing up your daughter in Italy, were you? So we lived in Italy uh, for like three and a half years in the end, then moved back to the UK. I mean, I would go backwards and forwards quite a lot. And it was actually better to be here because all our customers were here. We were selling the oil to, you know, Waitrose and, and Selfridges and, and places like that. So we had two two elements to the business. We had the, this adopt an olive tree and, you know, olive oil that we would sell to retailers. But yeah, so by the end of that, I'd, I really had enough. I'd taken it as far as I could. Like I said, the limiting factor was that I had relationships with all these people. So I just kind of didn't want to take it any further. Found a buyer, decided to kind of, oh yeah, then we we took a seven-month trip around the world with our three kids. Wow. Uh, which was absolutely freaking awesome. But that was meant to be a time when I would work out what I was going to do next with my life. But unfortunately for those seven months, I didn't think about that at all. I, I think that's the way it works though. <laughs> yeah. I think we go on these, we go, oh, I'm going to go on holiday and I'll sort all this out. And you take some paperwork with you or something. Now the benefit is that you give your brain time to reset. And when you come back, I bet when you came back though, you felt clearer. Oh my God, I was so much happier. Yeah. I, but I, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, I spent a while kind of like, meeting people randomly for coffee. Anyone who would have coffee with me, I kind of met up with them, asked them what they're doing, tell them a few ideas I'd have. And then this coalesced into this, the main people I were meeting, I was meeting were like food and drink entrepreneurs. And it kind of came into the sense that, you know, all these food and drink entrepreneurs have got all this hard-earned knowledge. We got to share it and we are really willing to share it. And so all these challenger brands up against the big guys, we've got so many disadvantages, but we're scrappy and we're much more collaborative than anyone else. So I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to do something that pulls all these people together. So I started up a, a Facebook group called the Food Hub where people could kind of share information, ask staff questions, where do I get a barcode or what's the buyer's name at Ocado or um anyone got a good photographer. And that that that's actually turned into like a community of about 11, 12,000 food and drink entrepreneurs now. But that was my first kind of sense of bringing this community together. And that's very unusual. They would share a buyer's name. Do you know what I mean? In most industries, it's like... Oh, yeah, yeah. Dog eat dog. But um, I think, I don't know, I think the, the, the food and drink community is, is different. It's people who are wanting to make things and they, they love food and they're kind of into, into natural things. And I don't know if it attracts a certain type of person. I'm not sure. And then I got together with a, a business partner and we decided to start up a, a conference and, uh, called Bread and Jam. So it was called uh, Bread and Butter the first year. And I did, a, I did the kind of IP trademarking thing all myself and uh, didn't find out for a year that there was another company called Bread and Butter uh, who then tried to, well, they sent us the kind of letter cease of... Cease and desist. Yeah, cease and desist letter. So that was a good learning yeah. But you did the trademark. That's normally when you flush them out. Yeah. So I think I just, they were a European company. They were a German okay. company in a completely different industry, but they did events. It was right. like in fashion or something. Right. 
So I always hang on, recommend. Hang on, the Germans can't steal bread and butter. That's our phrase, <laughs> you know. The next thing we've we'll well, 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 two world wars over that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do we own nothing in this country? You know. Anyway. Yeah, that argument didn't didn't, didn't work. Go unfortunately, down well, no, um, sadly. So it was after a year that we became bread and jam. Which, to be honest, I just think I quite like bread and jam because bread and butter, I mean, it's such a phrase, you know. I would use it as an account when someone says, oh, this happens quite when you do VAT returns. Like, yeah, yeah, bread and butter. You know, it's like, of course I do that. But bread and jam, I don't know, it draws me a different emotion and it makes me feel sort of like a little longer time ago. I don't know. It's I think it's a better name. I think it's yeah. a better name. Well, I mean, that was another little business kind of uh, learning, I think, was it wasn't that important, to be honest. No. We were like, oh my God, we can't be called bread and jam. We can't be called bread and butter anymore. It's a disaster. We're going to have to change our branding. We're going to have to change our colors because it's all yellow, our kind of branding, like butter. And none of that mattered. So anyway, we um, we decided to kind of do a, a conference, which was basically uh, getting a whole load of experienced food and drink entrepreneurs in a room and getting them to share their learnings with people a bit further, a bit earlier, earlier stage. And, uh, you know, peer-to-peer knowledge sharing. And um, it, it kind of worked. We didn't make any money in the first year, but uh, the feedback was was great. And then, so since 2016, we've been doing that every year. We have had brilliant speakers from from the food world. And you're looking very slim still. So you've clearly, you clearly, you know, you're good at trying food, but within within reason, you know. Yeah, well, maybe that's my plant-based diet. Uh, okay, could be, good segue, I like it. So that is uh, that's another hat that I wear. I've also got a vegan startup that I, I'm I'm working on called Unruly, and we we're developing some products at the moment that we hope to bring to to market soon. But yeah, my my main bread and butter is bread and jam. Um, since lockdown last year, we've been doing it all online. Uh, so it's kind of more virtual events, and uh, we're gonna we've got our next annual conference this October. And online is it going to be? Yeah. We're going to have a f- nice physical element to it. We're going to have a drink, uh, a kind of networking drink in a brewery in London. That's what I love about the food and drink people. It's like, you know, I, in my job, I quite like to have a bit of lunch. We'll go for a beer or yeah. something, you know. And you, The food and drink people are like, absolutely, you know, this is, you know. Absolutely. But I also think it's quite important to get people in a room together, have a few drinks, make friendships, slap each other's backs, make some collaborations. I think we're really missing that. So I just want to kind of provide that opportunity for people. And did you find, I mean, online events, the upside wider audience, you can get the top speakers easier because they do it in their underpants at home. Exactly. So that's the upside. But yeah, the the, the, the downside is it misses the, the je ne sais quoi, I guess. Yeah, so we, we kind of saw uh, early last year, people were really keen to go online. And then by early this year, people were like fed up with it. And now a quick word from our sponsor. At Ori Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients, and if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? 
Dominic Frisby sat down with Juliet Ori to talk about immigration. So Don, one of the most important things that companies need to bear in mind if they're hiring here in the UK is that they have an obligation to check that an individual has a right to work in the UK. You must not take people's word for it. You must, in fact, check their documentation. So that means checking their passport. If they're not a British national, then checking what visa that they have. So that normally their BRP card, which is often where the visa is. Okay, so this is another responsibility that an employer now has. Yes. And how long has employers had that responsibility? Oh, for a long, long time. But what has happened in recent years is we've bought in much more of the enforcement. So if you are found, and we have had a number of clients go through this process, if you are found with an illegal worker and you haven't undertaken appropriate right to work checks, it's a £20,000 fixed penalty fine per illegal found. Find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now, back to the chat. What is the most uncomfortable truth about being in business? Good question. I think I not only see this happening to other people, but I've kind of experienced myself. But I think a lot of people don't know how to make money. It's, it's as simple as that. Um, with my olive oil business, it was quite a complicated kind of financial makeup of cash flow. You know, we talked about, mm. we got the money way up front. It was an incredibly seasonal business as well. We'd do most of our sales at uh, Christmas time. I'd have to kind of pre-buy stuff. And I got a lot of money in beforehand. And I got an accountant in to kind of try and explain everything to me. And he really made me understand that I'm one of those people who don't really know how to make make money because I don't have a tight enough grasp on the margins. Mm. And I see this with so many businesses that they're just not geared up to make a profit. They don't understand the financial side of things enough. It's buying something, it's selling something for, you know, more than it costs you to buy, as someone summarized it to. But particularly in food industry, I think when you set up in any of those industries, you forget the amount of other margin you're going to have to give away. I mean, I, I, I work on that kind of industry. You've got to be starting thinking one in 10. You know, if it costs you a pound, retail's got to be at least 10. And that, when you're starting out, you're like, oh, no, 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 you yeah. know, it'll be three pounds. It's like, no, because, you know, this and that and this and that, you know. You can never have too much margin, basically. No, you know? absolutely. I think that um, a lot of people don't really like, with, with food, it's more like you want 50%. 50%. You want 40 to 50%. And I think most people you know, they're around the, the 20% and they're always going to struggle. But there are businesses that have a low volume, high margin business, which is successful, but your margins just got to be that much, that much greater. A lot of the speciality businesses I'm talking about that you get in the farm shops and delis, and they're not going to sell like huge volumes, but they're totally in control of it. They, they make it themselves and it is possible to make money. What's most misunderstood about being an employer? With the olive oil business, I uh, employed several people and I hated it. I'm not a great employer. I don't really enjoy it. Does anyone enjoy being an employer? Well, some people, it's all about them, isn't it? They, well, if they're egotistical, but they're not a good employer, I wouldn't say. No, maybe maybe not. But at least they can be clear about communicating. No, I think there are, there are people who, who, who like it, who thrive in that role. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the most misunderstood thing for me is how lonely it is at the top. Like being there, making your own decisions, trying to fake it, you know, trying to pretend to everyone you know what's going on, trying to lead people. 
And I've always, you know, I've always been very much into a really nice work culture and kind of making people feel important and empowered and stuff. But I'm crap at doing that myself. What do you mean you're crap at doing it? I'm a, I think I'm a lone wolf. I like doing things my way and I don't think anyone else can really do it as good. Yeah, yeah. Perfectionist, that suggests. So you're a perfectionist? Yeah, but in my own weird way. I'm probably really sloppy at certain things, but for me, that's the right way. Currently, what's the hardest thing you do in your job and how do you deal with it? What is the hardest thing? Well, I suppose the hardest thing I do, I, I do a lot with people and I, I kind of get, you know, people to do talks for us and I get, I want to give people value out of the talks we do and I'm a real people pleaser. I want everyone to be happy. So I find it really hard when um, a lot of energy goes into that. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I just... I'm one of those people, I want everyone to be happy. So whether they're the people talking for us or the people coming to our events. So I suppose I, I find that quite hard. But of course, that's got a, a double edge to it that it means that, you know, I make sure that things are good. I make sure people are happy. I make sure that people feel, you know, that they're really involved in something good. And so that takes a lot of energy. And you're talking about, you know, bread and jam, are you in things or everything? Yeah, but also... Um, even with my vegan startup, you know, you have to you have to do a lot of kind of hard negotiation with with people as well in, in terms of manufacturers or um, retailers and stuff. And I'm like, I'll say yes to anything. So I've got to make sure that the I've got co another co-founder with the vegan thing, and I got to make sure that they they're not going to let me just say yes to to anything and say yes to the wrong prices or to the wrong kind of relationships and deals and stuff. Yeah, I guess if you're you're aware of margin, then you're. Yeah, you're very uh, sensitive to that conversation anyway. You need to fight your corner sort of thing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, you, you, you find people who've got complementary skills or, or characteristics. What's been your biggest realisation through any failures? So, like I said before, I think it's not to take things too personally. My first proper business, the Oliver business, it was so close to me. Any failures or fuck-ups or mistakes or disappointments... I felt, you know, in my soul. Mm. So I just realized that there's got to be a bit of a separation between me and the business and I can go home and kind of forget about it. How do you do that? It's hard, particularly if you're a freelancer or your own business, it's like your kid, isn't it? It, it, it is hard, and but I think you can, you, you can get a, a little bit better. I just can't constantly repeat to myself, you know, this isn't everything. Yeah, yeah, This yeah. isn't everything. Kids help, I guess. Kids really help, yeah. yeah. You could create an alter ego. You could do a Slim Shady version, couldn't you? You could have like, I'm Slim Shady in the office. But I'm Eminem at home, yeah. you know? I have a trampoline <laughs> version of myself. <laughs> trampoline version? Yeah, that when I'm on the trampoline with the kids. Yeah, that's yeah, I nice. don't think any of you would recognise me with, on the trampoline. Tell us an inspiration. Who out there can we look to learn from in business at the moment? There's a guy who I think he, he, he really inspires me. We got him to speak at one of our first conferences and I've seen his business grow for many years. He's called uh, Jamal and he's got a business called Change Please. And what he does is he takes uh, homeless people off the streets of London, trains them to be baristas and coffee roasters. No way. Because it's quite difficult, that skill. It takes a while to learn to be a barista as it, opposed to a barrister. Yeah. <laughs> Commonly. Commonly. <laughs> now I know why I lost that court case. Yeah, I, was say, I wonder if there's any barista barristers out there, actually, who've done both. There must be a few. 
I think the challenge actually was not training them. It was getting them on their feet again. You know, he would give them a proper wage and they would often had, you know, addiction problems or, or psych- psychological problems and they would often revert to their previous issues. So he had to kind of create a very rigid training structure and support network around them. He has just, um, and his business has gone from strength to strength. He created a retail brand called Change Please, which is in, I think it's in most of the major multiples. Uh, again, it's roasted by these people who've been taken off the streets. And Oh, I get the, I get the pun now, Change Please, yeah. but I want change and all of that. Nice. Absolutely. And also, the, you know, they were, they were asking for change on the, on the on streets. The street. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a perfect example of like, he's providing a, a really good, Top quality product, uh, the right price point, and you go into you go into your Sainsbury's and you got his product and you got another product that costs exactly the same, tastes the same. Why the hell wouldn't you buy his? Because mm. it's got this fantastic story. And, and homeliness is it. one of the real crimes of our society. Really, if we're living in this modern world. You know, if I put a bullet in someone's head, the government will pay for me for it to have a room and TV and food and drink for the rest of my life. But you know, if I have some mental health issues and therefore I end up, you know, medicating using drugs and then I get thrown out of my home. Like, it's actually quite hard. I learned this years back, but it's quite hard to become homeless in a way. And the people who tend to do it tend to be quite nice people. Because if you throw yourself at the state, like if you refuse, so you can't pay your rent and you're in trouble, if you refuse to leave that property, eventually a court will get involved and they'll never make someone homeless. They'll just say, we better pay for his rent. He's got to be housed. But, or, you know, I saw this happen with a lady actually, but she was such a nice person. Nice people when they can't pay their rent say, oh, I better go stay at my friends on the sofa. And mm-hmm. then that friend gets sick and you go to another sofa and then that's it. You suddenly run out of road because you've lost all of your, you know, and your confidence goes. And that is, I think- And your address goes. I mean, like, address, you can't yeah. get a job once, once you've got no address, you're screwed. I lived on a boat for a year and I didn't have an address while I was on a boat. And it was just such a pain in the arse. <laughs> yeah. Just, you just kind of fall out of the system. One of the main reasons I left living on the boat was just to get a bloody address. Right. It was yeah. just such a nightmare. Because they weren't except PO boxes or anything, were they? Not really. Well, we, the, the address was care of the British Waterways office. <laughs> And you were like, no, no, that doesn't... <laughs> Paddington, London. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you were ever given? Good question. I listened to a lot of kind of successful food entrepreneurs talking and one of, one of the most inspiring ones, I, I ended up working for him for a while, a guy called Wilfred Emmanuel Jones and uh, he's got a brand called The Black Farmer. You should have him on this. He, he, he's a great guy, very inspiring. And he taught me how business decisions shouldn't always be done based on fact. Uh, it sounds kind of bizarre, but you, you know, you've got to make decisions with your heart as well as your head, ultimately, because uh, you can have all the data in the world, but sometimes it's, it's not right. And it's historical. The problem with data, like, there might be like, oh, well, you know, there are no black farmers. Exactly. People would never buy for black. It's just like... Well, exactly. Whatever. And actually, he uses his kind of the name, the black farmer, as a as a good example. He he is a black farmer from kind of um, he's West Indian descent, grew up in the UK, and he did well in telly and made some money. Bought a farm in in Cornwall or Devon and moved out there. And all the locals they used to call him the black farmer. And he decided he wanted to start a food brand. He was like, that'd be be a great name for a food brand, the black farmer. And everyone you know? said a bad idea. And everyone said. Ridiculous idea, makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't know if it's racist. I don't know this and that. And he's like, brilliant. 
It's a great. Yeah. It makes people feel something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he kind of ignored all the kind of the the advisors and the the branding people, and he's like, "It's going to be the black farmer." You got story. You're both from telly. You both understand storytelling. Yeah, you know, which is so important ultimately. You know, and it's that it's that uh, people uh, want coffee. Like you gave the example, you want an item, but when you come to buy it, it's the storytelling which sells it. Like you want it to somehow make sense to you what you're buying. You know what I mean? And actually homelessness is quite a complex one with coffee and stuff. So it's quite an interesting narrative he's managed to weave, I imagine, when you look at the packaging that you kind of get it. It is. Yeah, and and often, you know, you don't want to... You don't want to ram that story down people's throats. Mm. I think some of the most successful brands, um, they don't necessarily, like Tony's Chocolate Only. I mean, I don't know if anyone knows its main reason, raison d'etre, is, is to stop slavery in the chocolate industry. No way. So I don't know if you know that brand. No, but I don't. It, it's, there, you know, it's in all the supermarkets now. It's like a Willy Wonka chocolate bar, but uh, it's all about anti-slavery. Karma Cola is another one. Um, they're all about kind of sustainable purchasing of, of cocoa beans. Um, and they don't like shove that story down your throat, but it's very easy to find it. Once you find it and you discover it yourself, you're hooked for life and you're an, an brand ambassador and you're totally in there and you'll tell 100 other people about it. And it's a very clever way of telling the story, but not overtly. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I had to say to someone the other day, they're, they're a startup and they were like, oh, we're going to give money and we're going to... And I was like, look, I mean, look, day one, just make this thing make money. Don't confuse the venture cap. Don't confuse everybody with your ethical mission. That's great. But until this thing makes money, it isn't an ethical mission. It's a business. And if, like, it's already confusing me sitting there as an accountant because I'm like, well, hang on, we're giving away 10... Uh, what? You know, like... It's like, what does bootstrapping mean? All these stupid phrases. Well, I don't actually know what it says if you look up in a dictionary, but I've slowly worked out bootstrapping just means that show that the thing works, show that A plus B means you make a profit. You know, somehow, some fucking way, cut the corners, prove the fundamental principle and then build from there. And I think ethics and, you know, and you bear it on your T-shirt, I think it's such an interesting you know, how people fit ethics into that early stage of a startup. But, you know, you will need to cut corners. You know, you won't necessarily be able to be as ethical as you would like, but it's okay. Is it okay? I don't know, but, you know, it's okay to make money and then be ethical. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with you. And I, I, I tell people who are starting, because because basically everyone wants to, you know, they want to do it ethically. They want to not use plastic. They want to have a kind of uh, ethical supply chain. They want to do everything but what you've got to do is really drum down what your red lines are and stick to them. But like you say, you don't have a business until it, you know it, until it's making money. And then you can kind of retrofit a lot back into it. The flip example is, you know, people would say McDonald's or something. I mean, they've done huge things over the last 20 years. But actually, the flip example is you can get a very, very big business and people go, oh, big business is bad. And it's like, actually... When they give it, when they work out that the consumer, it's important that they're ethical, the power they have as a business, you know, from that position to say, right, we're only going to have UK beef or whatever, you sure. know. Sure, but you're not going to get me saying anything nice about McDonald's. Oh no, so. I'm sure. I don't know much about them. <laughs> Maybe they are a bunch of bastards. I don't know, but you know, um, I mean, do you all think all big businesses are bad? Or oh, for sure, no. Okay. No, 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 absolutely. I, I I kind of, you know, I think I'm quite pragmatic in believing that that's where a lot of the solutions will, will come from. And I think uh, one constant, like, you know, 
um, when Trump was in power in the, the States, the, the, the one good thing was that a lot of the big industries were still carrying on with their kind of, you know, moving over to greener energies and, and sorting things out whilst he was kind of off polluting Nobody knows what the airways. ever yeah. doing, yeah. So I, I think, um, obviously, it's very much part of the solution. What are your top three reads? So I'm... Well, the first one isn't a book. Uh, it, it's a magazine that I love called Career Magazine. Don't know if you've come across it. It's kind of stories of modern business, uh, monthly... Monthly thing, one of the few career, kind, career, uh, courier, courier. Yeah, uh, it covers all sorts of any sort of, sort of business. Uh, it's a kind of international magazine, stories from around the world. Really, finger is on the pulse. is is always really fascinating to read. I subscribe to that. Another book that I inspired me, and I kind of look back at a lot, is a, a book called "Let My People Go Surfing." Have you come across that? It's by the guy who started up Patagonia, mm. which is... Um, the clothing brand. The, the clothing brand, which has got some fantastic ethics behind it. Uh, he's a really inspiring guy, very thought-provoking, and kind of proves how you can build a very successful, massive, uh, conscientious business, um, which we, you know, we're just talking about. And then um, another book I would say is worth reading is a book called Small Giants, a guy called Bo Burlington um, studied like 14 uh, incredible businesses that basically rejected this idea of you got to endlessly grow. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah so, please. Um, but they were very successful and they built fantastic businesses, but you can stay, you can be creative and you can be bold and inspiring, but um, you can also be kind of manageable and intimate and, and not have too many employees. <laughs> <laughs> And what are you most excited about for the future of your business? Well, with Bread and Jam, we, we, we're going to try and take it international, which is going to be cool. We're going to do it in Ireland for the first time next year. And then with my vegan startup, we got some... <laughs> I'm excited about the, the secret products that we're working on. Okay, so that brings us to the main event, the business versus bullshit quickfire round. D, cue the music. And this is where we reel off a list of key terms and all you have to do, Jason, is tell us whether you think it's business or bullshit. Are you ready? Yes. Off you go, Andy. You ask the number, first one. Number one, diversity quotas. Business. That's the second time in two interviews where somebody has said business. Someone's got it wrong. <laughs> uh, two, stand-up meetings. Business. Slogans in the workplace. Bullshit. Pub lunches. Yeah, bullshit. Andy. Incorrect. <laughs> I'll, I'll mark it down. Don't worry, I've got him. You dinosaurs. Work, formal. Oh no, this is you. Uh, formal work clothes. Bullshit. Uh, board minutes. What are they? I sort of agree with you, but yeah. Uh, uh, conferences. Oh, uh, business. <laughs> <laughs> My business. <laughs> Exercising. Of business. NDAs. Non-disclosure agreements. Bullshit. I agree. Acronyms. Bull. BS, sorry. <laughs> Coffee. Business. Office dogs. Ooh. Um, hope my co-founder isn't listening. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> 
I also have an office dog, and he's quite often here. So is very well done. You scored 28 out of 5,000 in this excellent work. Thank you. I'm honoured. Um, Jason, thank you very much. If our listeners want to find out, out about more about you uh, and what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah, feel free to kind of connect with me on LinkedIn. And Bread and Jam is at breadandjamfest.com. Come check it out. And um, yeah, that's it. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you very much to Jason Gibb for joining us. A big thank you to you, dear listener. And we'll be back with another episode in a fortnight. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Biz Without BS, B-I-Z Without BS, where you'll find more helpful business content. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for us using the hashtags Biz Without Without BS or Ori Clark. Until next time, from me, Dominic Frisbee, and from Andrew Ori, it is Cheerio. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. To find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at oriclark.com. That is contact at O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K dot com or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.